Welcome back to the Hill of Roses, where we come once again to celebrate the best works of our United Progressive Movement. We come once again to have another episode of our Me Plus Three segment, where we get to hear from a bunch of you in our community on some of the most pressing topics of the day, whether it be the political races or the actual issues themselves. In today's conversation, we're going to be discussing ways that we can try and create a more ethical, efficient, an educated economy. So with me today, we're going to have Frank Branches, Gregory Berry, as well as the Token Square. So I'm going to just go around the group and you guys can tell me the name you want the folks out there to know you as, uh, what you do for a living, and where you're from. So Greg, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, you can call me Greg. <laughs> uh, I am a writer and I'm from San Francisco. Sounds good. How about you, Frank? Want to tell the folks out there a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, it's Frank Branches. Uh, I'm a host of uh, another show called RP Grinders. Um, as far as employment goes, um, I've done many things in my life. Uh, recently, I was uh, actually a bud tender here in Denver, Colorado. So that gives you a little bit of background where I'm from. Nice. And how about you, The Token Square? How do you want the folks out there to know you as? Well, hey, uh, The Token Square is not really a private type of thing so you can call me Patrick I'm fine with that and uh, I live in Eugene Oregon and I do customer service for a tech company I think I should leave it at that if you don't mind uh, yeah no problems okay so as I had discussed uh, the topic of today is how we can actually try and make our economy more efficient ethical and educated so I'm going to start with you, Greg. Do you believe today's economy is ethical? No, and I'm not sure what you mean by today's. I mean, capitalism itself isn't. It seems to me there's two ways you can take ethics. There's within capitalism and without, in, in a larger sense. Capitalism isn't ethical because you're paying the worker less than they're worth. But even within capitalism, part of the problem is that corporations are paying the uh legislators and the government to make rules that favor them, which is unfair even within capitalism. So, no. Yeah, well, I think we're going to have a lot of people agreeing with you there. So, Frank, do you agree that uh, the economy today or even in the past has been ethical or not? Uh, definitely not ethical. Um, <laughs> uh, going all the way back to even the 50s and even before, it's been it's been the same capitalist uh, capitalistic system that we've uh, that we've had, and and I think right now is about the turning point when we're really seeing the the overwhelming effects on the on the little guy. I, I agree with Greg wholeheartedly. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot of that sentiment within the progressive base. Uh, Patrick, do you agree that today's economy is unethical? Um, I absolutely agree that it is unethical. Um, especially if we take a look at, you know, what are we talking about when we say is something ethical? Um, you know, it, is it the system that serves us best? I guess I come from that kind of a base view of it. Um, I'm actually not opposed to capitalism. And that may be where I differ from some other people <laughs> uh, with our community. Um, but I think it's a tool that needs to be very much tweaked um, until it's, well, I believe it's inevitably going to squash itself out. Yeah. But I'd be happy to expound on that. But no, it's not, um, uh, especially with 
the current view of corporations being individuals. Of course, we could talk Citizens United on that, you know, and, and then, of course, I've always had in any of my economics classes, I would, uh, you know, I'd really drill my instructors on what's about, what is this fiduciary obligation, you know, the legal requirement that the board of the corporation, the number one thing, and they can be sued if they don't do it, is if they don't make money for their shareholders. So whatever decision they have to do, if they do the right, or as we're talking about, the ethical thing, they they get sued. Yeah. So there, there's, I mean, that's just the tip, of course, of the iceberg. But yes, it's not ethical. I think there is definitely some place for capitalism. I think the problem is we're very far out of whack in terms of the balance mm-hmm. between social actual justice and having workers empowerment versus what capitalism has become, which is a lot of cronyism in having this economic inequality in terms of where wages and wealth is actually being transferred to. On that mm-hmm. note, I'd be curious, Greg, what do you think actually would be an ethical economy? What defines being an ethical economy to you? I think I think that uh, I agree with, I think both of you said that capitalism can be used, but the point is it needs to be used by the people in a way that benefits us the most. And the problem now is it's not, it's not focused on benefiting everyone. It's focused on benefiting the owners. So I think that there are places for it. There are places where, you know, competition works fine. Like with our cell phones, they seem, everyone seems to love that. So it's, it's just, it's really a question of, of ownership. And I think that even as, uh, something that'd be a big help would just be having the workers own the means of production. That, that's not contrary to capitalism. You know, it depends on how you define capitalism, but you can keep the corporations, but put them in the hands of the people working there, and then that would get rid of a lot of the problem. So I, I think the one thing there is definitely ownership is that driving force. I think when it comes to capitalism, we are seeing a large part of the actual people doing the work are not actually having a say. So I think having a maybe stronger union system where they can have a bigger seat at the table and potentially more board seats on boards could help in the way you're kind of describing. But Frank, uh, you were alluding to a lot of these unethical problems in our system being due to capitalism. Do you think there is a place for capitalism within an ethical economy? Uh, I actually don't. <laughs> um, I think I think with with a capitalist system, it's been it's been seen time and time again. Like it eventually crushes itself. I mean, the United States is no different. I mean, we, you know, in this country, we kind of think like <clears throat> like in terms of. Uh, this country being quote unquote the best or great, you know, it's like for some people in this country, it's never been great. You know, people of color for one, uh, especially black people in this country, this country's never been great, um, and a lot of it's due to to capitalism. So, I, in my opinion, like, um, I, I, I don't think there's a place. Um, I, and I think inevitably, capitalism um, will want to to uh, bring its tentacle out into other aspects of our society so until we we do something different we're, we're not going to learn our lesson i mean in every aspect of of industry or in society um it poisons 
um, I, I kind of liken it to to religion. You know, it, it's got these tendrils that, that go out in different different parts of, of the country and, and eventually uh, people see it for what it is. Um, and and I, 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 I understand the, the thought behind competition, but what if we didn't have to compete? What if we were all working towards a common goal that helped everybody instead of always wondering about who's making more money and who has more money? Like I, I, I find it gross that Forbes puts out a list of the 500 richest people in the world every so often. And I, I'm like, hundred happiest. Yeah. It, it just, uh, uh, it, just <laughs> it doesn't work. It eventually doesn't work. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is also being seen in some of these countries that are, you know, labeled as being like socialist countries, like a, a Venezuela in mm -hmm. happenstance. We have this capitalist system wanting a lot of those assets that are actually within that, especially things like oil. And so we have a lot of this undue influence that capitalism tries to play in terms of influencing our foreign policy as well mm. to say, okay, I know you want to have this work for your people, you've nationalized it, but we want it for our shareholders. And so I'd be curious, Patrick, as someone who feels like there is this place for balance, how do you think we can actually achieve a balance between socialist good versus capitalist uh, models of markets? So... <laughs> I, I apologize, you know, and I really appreciate the invitation here. I almost feel like I'm ready to go on a, you know, like a one hour seminar here. <laughs> uh, but really, to me, it kind of comes from a rather large historical perspective. We have kind of a modern um, uh, facile system. You know, we have our I think when you take a look at those lists from Forbes and things about the most, you know, wealthy people, it's really society's internal way of trying to see who are the lords right yeah. now. We're we're all the, you know, the subjects of some lord somewhere economically, but we don't know who they are. We don't know who to complain to when our needs aren't met. And capitalism itself, you know, was, I think, an answer to that. Uh, say, hey, we the people need to be in charge of our own lives. We're going to own the means of production. We're going to guide ourselves. And it allowed for great efficiency and transfer of wealth and served us well for many, many years. But then you get the Industrial Revolution. And I think, you know, socialist theory starts kicking in saying, oh, efficiency and productivity really has a chance to grow here. And the wealth is being transferred to the owners, but not to the workers more and more and more. And as that started to happen, I think a lot of different theories came in saying, how do we balance this? Because it was still we, the people who didn't want to be lorded over, if you will. And so, you know, there was attempts to look at this, but I think it's obvious from back then that the growth of productivity was sparking another new social movement. And, you know, we couldn't just get rid of capitalism. It's like, where does that go? We don't have the efficiency yet to just give people what they need based on what we could produce. But if we could produce enough, we might reach that someday. And so you get that socialism trying to become communism. I think, I, I think there is room, though, to use 
the engine of capitalism with a whole bunch of, I mean, I'm trying to imagine an automobile. We're all in it. We're trying to get somewhere. Who's in charge of where it goes right now? It's the owners of the engine, the capitalist system. They're totally in charge. And we know that, but they're telling us a dream that some, they're selling us this lie of mobility within society. You could become wealthy. It's bullshit. I know you said we could use words, <laughs> but it isn't, especially in the United States, which is crazy. You, yeah. We're the ones who've sold that American dream to the world, and yet we can't produce it here in our own country. Uh, so lots of filters, lots of extra tubes, lots of understanding how the machine works so it's operated properly. Get us back in the seat in control of it, increase those efficiencies, increase that productivity, uh, and then when we can, we can afford to replace it with an, a different engine that doesn't hurt, Man. pollute, and do all the other crap it does right now. That's so true. I think we're all kind of echoing the sentiment that we need to address who is getting to make decisions. And so I'm curious to know what you guys think would be manners in which we can try and create a more ethical and efficient economy. So, Greg, what do you think are some manners in which we can actually start driving towards this goal we want? Well, I, uh, I, I had something to say about what uh, Patrick was just saying that relates to this. I read this great book one time called The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And the basic point of that book was that Capitalism and this interpersonal competition are not necessarily the same thing. And what uh, Max Weber was the author, what he was, what his claim was, was that Christianity and Calvinism is what created this competition that's what is truly destructive. And if you can imagine a system where, yes, we have, you know, maybe I own my own farm, but I'm not out to make more money than anyone else. What's the point? I just want to be happy. Like Frank was saying, it's like, what difference does it make who has more? Mm. I need to be happy. You need enough to be happy. And it's just an interesting thing to think about that maybe what, why do we even have this need to have more money? Where does it, where does that idea come from? It, it's not, it's not as obvious as it seems to everyone in this country. And so to the education question, if you think there's other cultures, like the Japanese I know, and I think the Swedish and the other sort of successful socialist countries, where they simply have a sense that they're in this together. They're not in it to do better than their neighbors. They're in it to do better with their neighbors. Mm. And that's what needs to be done to fix this problem. So how to do it, that, I mean, I think that the establishment and the Republicans have been attacking like a really hard attack on our public education system for decades. And the purpose is to break it down because it makes us easier to con and easier to control. Yeah. And what's needed is a, a cultural sort of like underpinning of doing things together that is absolutely antithetical to America. The problem with America is we were based on this idea of don't tread on me and leave me alone and get out of the way. And that is so deeply ingrained in America that I don't know how we would, 
I don't know if it's possible to get rid of it, but we need to start with kindergartners, you know, sharing rather than competing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, so I, I think that's the bottom line is that it, it requires an entirely new way of thinking about of what we value in culture is the problem that we have in particular. Mm -hmm. So, Frank, I'm curious, as the one person from the group who did say that we do need to truly overhaul the capitalist system, that it doesn't have a place in an efficient and ethical economy, do you agree that it's more of a mind shift that we need to make in terms of competition, as uh, Greg had kind of pointed out? Or do you think there are intrinsic uh, things institutionally that we need to change to have the economy be efficient and ethical? It's actually a combination of both. I think I think Greg uh, hit on a point that uh, not a lot of people in this country really, really think about. Um, why does everything have to be a competition? You know, why why can't we work towards common goals? And 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 I I'll tell you, like, there's no no easy answer to that, John. I I, I honestly think it it starts with what Greg was saying. It's it's education. The only way to do that is to start start like right when you're in in kindergarten, you know, like um, start teaching people think the right way of thinking, and the right way of thinking is not always you know the the United States is number one in this and that area, uh, the United States is number one in sharing ideas. That's what we should work towards, you know. Is is, and I know um, you know politically, people will say, well, you know. Um, the sharing of ideas is exactly what this country is about. But if you look at our partisan system, it never works. You have you. I mean, intrinsically, you have two parties: the Democrats and the Republicans that are always fighting about opposite ends of the spectrum of things, and there's never there's never really any common ground. And if if you change the mindset mindset starting from kindergarten all the way all the way on up to college. Uh, and by the way, college should be free for everybody. I mean, that's one way of getting ahead of the curve is to offer people the opportunity, whether they're white, black, yellow, you know, poor, rich, whatever. Um, you know, that would be a way of, uh, you know, getting people educated and in the right mindset, um, you know, what we're talking about here. But you, you've got to start start with a different mindset right at the beginning. Now, what those, those uh, intrinsic values are, I mean that's that's for a different discussion, but you know if you if if you have this mentality that we're always going to be right and we're always number one in anything we do, you're you're never going to achieve what what you want to do in life. So the answer is definitely like what Greg was saying, like it start you know start with education. That that's a good starting point. Frank, can I ask you something about that? Just you you can imagine what a right winger would say that what you're saying and what I was saying flies in the face of this American sense of individualism yeah. and freedom to do what you want. And if you start saying, okay, from now on starting in kindergarten, we're gonna be teaching kids to share and to care about their neighbors more than themselves, you can imagine the kind of reaction yeah. that's gonna get from the right. How do we deal with that? And can we? Uh, we can. Um... And it, I mean, you're, you're never going to get certain things. I mean, there's a certain percentage of, of, you know, Republicans that think Trump isn't racist right now. Um, <laughs> you're never going to get through to people like that. But those are the vast minority. I always tell people, 
And and people look at me sideways when I say this, and I'm like, you know, people in, in, inherently are good. You know, we didn't survive for however many thousands of years that we've been on this planet uh, because we weren't good by nature. You know, people people in general are good. I mean, I know that there's the bad. You know, there's bad people on the left. There's bad people on the right. There's bad people in the middle. But, um, you know... Um, we're not what eight billion strong because everybody's a bad, you know, piece of crap person. And and you know, I mean, we just we pretty much want to live, and that's how we survive. Is we, you know, we we make more of ourselves, you know. So I don't I don't inherently think people are bad, um, and and neither do I think corporations are bad. But I I definitely don't think that they are people, and that's what's missing is the humanity of all things. You know, you, um, it's just a, it's a matter of of you know, playing to our humanity. I think people by in general are, are good. And as long as we, we, you know, teach those, those good teachings and, and, you know, we have a different way of looking at things and, and, you know, we're all individuals. I'm, I'm not saying everybody has to be a robot in a, in a socialist society, but, you know, we, we definitely have to be able to share common interests and common goals. And, and, you know, somebody touched on, I don't know if it was Greg or, or, um, Patrick, but, um, you know, the environment's another important thing that I think we can all rally behind. I, I know that there's a certain part of, um, you know, especially here in the United States, a uh, 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 faction on the right that wants to deny the, the facts, you know, but but global warming is a thing. And um, I think it's a common cause that, that I think almost everybody can get behind and say, you know, this is a good starting point. So I'd be curious, Patrick, uh, do you think that this is more of a cultural and educational problem that we need to try and get people more aligned towards working together? Or is it we don't have any common goals? Or is it, again, that we have institutional problems that are causing the economy to function as it does? Well, <laughs> what a great question. I think it's a, a bit of all, really, but... Um, absolutely culturally, I have this idea that, you know, as our brains form and our memories of what we're seeing and how we work form, it physically becomes a part of us. Our culture is around us before we know what to begin to think of it. Our brains form around that culture as a norm. And we have more than it's just a difficult time of seeing it from other perspectives. Um, so education is definitely a part. And I think that's what a lot of people like Republicans and conservatives fear, a loss of culture or a change. Uh, and, and I can respect that, but I also would remind that culture changes just like language, just like everything. It changes. You can't, the more you try to stop it and freeze it in one place, mm the worse you feel, <laughs> the more the more battles you fight and end up losing. Uh, so we've got to embrace the reality of religion, culture, and, and people's values, which may be to us seemingly repugnant, you know. Uh, got to figure out where they're coming from. I think definitely uh, education, starting from good quality, affordable, or free, you know, child care. Mm -hmm. uh, great free education that isn't uh, being impacted by huge classroom sizes and teachers who are strung out 
not even getting paid to, when they're trying to grade because they run out of the allotted time. They're at home doing all the work, working mm-hmm. a second job. Disgusting. This yeah. is one of the most important critical jobs in our society. So I agree so much with Bernie about his $60,000 starting plan for teachers. I couldn't wait for that to get implemented and mm-hmm. fully up. But And of course, community colleges and public universities, tuition free, so that we could look at people's desire and their abilities, not their bank accounts. Yeah. And how are you going to pay this? <laughs> Absolutely destructive to our society to take people who love something and have the ability to do something and tell them, yeah, but can't pay for it. Mm. Go kick rocks. Seriously yeah. unethical. Um, so definitely foundational things there, but you, you can't take that culture away so quickly. You've got you to gotta recognize it for what it is and talk to it. And for me, it comes down to the philosophy of stuff. Uh, you know, you've, uh, to me, uh, it's not me, us. I'll just say that. Not me, us. That's the philosophy of the movement that I saw when Bernie was running. I'm like, that's it. You know, that's the culture I want to be in. That's the culture I want to promote. It's the idea I want to spread. You don't do that by making people angry and calling them retarded Republicans. You do that by saying, we're all here. This car is, we're all in the car. I just want democracy in the seat. Thank you. Yeah. John, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things I'd be curious to know from all three of you is one of the few things that Bernie has embraced compared to almost all of the other candidates is almost accepting who his enemies will be. He has his own anti-endorsements list. And yeah. so I'd be kind of curious, like, Greg, do you think it makes sense for us to try to have this type of class warfare system? Or is it trying to just promote a cultural transformation across the board? I think those are the same thing. When they say class warfare, they're talking about like 99.9% of us against 400 people. That's not really a class. That's not really warfare. That's just that we're you know, that's not, I mean, we are the culture. There is no culture of the 400. That doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to, I, I wanted to say that um, I completely agree with what Frank is saying about how I agree that everybody is good. And I think that everybody is doing what they think is best at all times. I think that the conversation we need to have is a little different because the problem is we're kind of easy to, hack or easy to manipulate and the people that are controlling everything the ones that are in control of the media and the message and the educational dollars and everything else they know how to feed on that and specifically they keep people afraid like that's that's why there's so much racism in the right right now is because they're being told that these people are taking away their jobs even though no one's ever experienced any kind of a negative situation with any immigrant ever, still mm. everyone knows that they're taking away all our jobs. And we're just really easy to lead. And so I think that I totally agree that we're all good. But I I think what I what I want to respond to with what you and what, what Frank and Patrick are saying is that I don't think that the issue here is about talking to 
like Republicans and getting them, I mean, in a way it is, we have to get them to see that we're all on the same side. But the problem we have with that is that the people that are, that there are people running the country who don't want what we want. So that's why Bernie is never on TV. No one has any idea what he's doing. And you, and my mother, who is sort of middle of the road liberal, she just, the last time we were talking, she said, oh, but I'm worried that Medicare for all is going to destroy Medicare. And <laughs> what are you talking about? But I know she got it from um, or, or CNN. So, yeah. I'm just trying to curious, like, Frank, do you think there is a scarcity mindset that is being promoted through our media currently? Yeah, there's no question about that. Great, great hit on it. Um, I think, actually, a lot of that has to do with money and politics. If we could, I honestly think that um, money and politics is probably the issue that could help with almost all of this. You know, if there was no no money period going into people's campaigns, you know, no big donors. Like if they would cap the money that politicians could get, then people could actually serve the people. This is why I think Bernie resonates with everybody. I mean, it, I think Bernie is actually the center. You know what I mean? I think we can go way further left on a lot of issues. Um, and, and, you know, you might put Warren just to the right of Bernie and, you know, whoever else, Tulsi Gabbard or, or, you know, a plethora of other candidates that are on the Democratic side. But um, if you could, if, I mean, if we could magically, you know, with the snap of our fingers, um, you know, just automatically take all the money out of politics and make everything an equal playing field and everybody could donate, let's say, $27 or $100, whatever you want to cap it at, I think that would alleviate a lot of the problems because then people wouldn't be working for for corporations or big donors. They'd be working for the people. And then we can get things passed like $15 minimum wage and, you know, we could work on climate control or climate control, you know, climate change and, you know, all the other issues that are pressing here, you know, um, education, um, all that type of stuff. All that stuff goes out the window. And, and as far as... Um, uh, like MSNBC and CNN, all that money that's coming in, those people definitely um, steer the conver conversation towards the corporate wing of, of, of politics. So to answer your question fully and honestly, it's all about the Benjamins. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're kind of spot on there in terms of like the first step being we have to get money out of politics. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that we're kind of breaking down barriers of trust now that we've all become kind of elevated in our mindsets of understanding who our politicians are currently working for, who our media organizations are trying to promote. And so it's caused a lot of this individualism where people say, you know who I trust? I trust myself. I trust my family. But all these other people, they can try and get their own. And so yeah. I'd be kind of curious, Patrick, do you think that the way we can actually reform our economy starts with our political system, or does it come from more of an external source? Ooh. <laughs> Give me an example of an external source. I mean, we can have, like, protests of specific businesses when they're doing bad practices. Uh, like, Bernie always joins in to ha uh, join with protest group for higher wages or better Love benefits it. Okay. or unions. Yeah. Or does it come from our actual political institution? Uh, both. <laughs> I wish I could say. <laughs> uh, it, 
so we're really talking about who's in the seat controlling the car, yeah? Yeah. Right now, oligarch. And we don't know always exactly who they are. And we certainly don't know with any clarity what they want and where they're driving. It always just seems like as long as they're in their walled off areas doing what they like, they're fine. Um, So institutionally, oh my gosh, yeah, we need huge reform and regulation within the institutions that control our economy. And it needs to be what walled off very clearly against regulatory capture when you have these corporations and super big money interests literally putting their own people with you know buying the spots on these committees with their own people writing the laws in their own hands with their own pens and just having it stamped off with the other people who are bought off in congress mm. you, yeah we've got institutional problems to the core for certain um but we also have to look at the other methods as well. Uh, protests, my gosh, sure. I mean, we, what is democracy? It isn't, I mean, if we're really going to be real here, it's not, a, it's not a spectator sport, ever. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be. And that might be something right there. It'd be like, if we're going to talk about creating classroom curriculum from the beginning, it's like, okay, class, instead of me telling you today, what we're going to do. Here's the game plan. Here's four options. What do you guys want to do? You know, and start getting that, hey, the whole group has some need to participate. And if you don't participate, you lose out in setting the group's priorities. Can can I jump in uh, for just a second? Um, I wish someone would. I'll talk yeah, forever. Uh, you know, I, I watched an interesting video in Hong Kong uh, with people protesting. I don't exactly know what the specific protest was, but if we had even one protest, let's say the topic was uh, kids in camps, you know, the concentration camps that are going on on the border. If we had one protest of that scale, shit would change. Uh, But we never never have, I mean, we had like the Million Man March at one point, we had, um, you know, there's been very few times that I can remember where people got so upset that we we actually protested in the streets. And I always wondered, uh, you know, if we could get that many people to protest the, the camps on the border, I don't think we'd have camps the next day. I couldn't agree with you more, Greg, honestly. I'm thinking, yeah, forgive me for interjecting here. I know I was kind of taken over before, but that's exactly right. You uh, if we had as many millions of people, you know, more than 10% of the population on any one given day, mm. step outside their doors and demand, you know, at their local city halls that we not put kids in concentration camps, mm. I definitely think something would be done. That's where I get hope that the oligarchy hasn't, you know, totally taken over yet. I know that to be a truth, but you've got We've got a culture, if we're talking about it, of, hey, I, you know, as long as I have my internet and my cell phone and food on my table and my kids seem to be safe going out to school and they come home and statistically we're still all good, if I've got that impression, it's fine. You know, we, we don't have that not me, us mentality. We have a, you know, it's us, not them 
mentality. We see ourselves in groups, but much smaller groups than we should on a national scale. Yeah. Uh, Frank, this is this is great. I wanted to say um, that uh, one problem that I have is about oh, just a very quick point about money and politics. That it's not just the donations to the campaigns. They're way slicker than that. Mm -hmm. Two examples: Claire McCaskill, a giant Democrat establishment loser, is now on MSNBC. Yeah. They promise her that job when she's working. So she knows you don't even have to win. You keep doing what we want you to do, and you'll have a nice job when you get out. Yeah, Joe that's Lieberman, yeah. Joe Lieberman's <laughs> wife was like on the boards of all these pharmaceutical companies, and he's the vote that that destroyed the public option. Yeah. So there's all sorts of ways that they give money to these people. You don't become rich as a senator from campaign donations. Yeah, absolutely. There's other stuff that no one ever even talks. I don't personally understand quite how it works. Yeah. You can see it working. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, Greg. The on, the only thing that I would say, like when when a pharmaceutical in industry hands you a check for you know twenty thousand dollars or however obs much obscene money that they've, I think Cory Booker was number one on that list yeah. with six point six point four million uh, in contributions. There is no way in hell that that will not influence your vote. You know what I'm saying? So that's- Of course, of course, I'm not denying yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah. just kind of curious for you yeah. all to like, let me know on what you think is the industries that we need more actual democratic action of people not being complacent on. We've mentioned the pharmaceutical industries here, but there are so many others. Yeah, Do you guys say that the gas. pharmaceutical industry is the greediest or is there another one? So like, Greg, what, what do you think on that one? Well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I wanted to, I, could I, first, before I answer that, respond to the other thing that uh, Patrick was saying, which relates to this also about, or it was, I guess, the question about how do we get people involved? And I wonder if everyone sees this the same way that I do. To me, the problem isn't the Republicans. They, they exist. They are what they are. They're, you know, they've been here for 200 years. The problem is the Democrats who... Yeah think of themselves as liberal, but are still completely about, you know, not in my backyard. And it drives me crazy when I watch how the establishment is amazing at dissipating that energy by, for instance, getting everybody angry for two years about Hillary losing and all the ways that she, all the ways that it was stolen from her when it's like, no, it's because she was the worst. She lost yeah. the easiest I could have won against Donald Trump. No one even knows me, but yeah. she managed to lose it. And right after the, the last election, for example, we went on this, uh, a friend of ours wanted us to go on this march for science. And we went, there were thousands of people in the street. And my wife and I were like, what in the hell are we even talking about? But everybody, everybody there's a Democrat and they all pat themselves on the back for what a great job they're doing of standing up for something. But it isn't anything. And then when you say, well, can we do that for Medicare for all? They're like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. How are we going to pay for it? It makes me pull my hair out. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I'd be kind of curious. In terms of, like, having this actual unity of goals so that we know what we are all collectively standing up for, I'd be curious to know what are some of these economic, like, basics that should be guaranteed as like a bill of rights for all of our people. Uh, so Frank, what, what do you think are some of these economic guarantees we should all be trying to rally behind? Um, guaranteed work. Um, I think that's, that's pretty important. Um, you know, it's, it, it, 
I think Medicare for all actually is is a good idea in more ways than one. I think that the thing that people overlook the most is the fact that when you lose your job, you also lose your health care. You know, if, if people if people aren't beholden to where they work, they would be happier because then they could just quit and still have health care and move to a different job and, and not always constantly worry. Also, economically, since we're talking economics, um, I've seen several people, I mean, these are, you know, obviously anecdotal, but on, on Twitter, people were saying, you know, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? And I've seen case after case saying, you know, if you're not paying your premiums, you you know, the private health insurance is a whole, whole other industry that I think is also all about greed. Uh, if we're talking about greed in other industries, you know, fossil fuels, uh, but, but specifically to, to this cause, if you're not paying thousands in premiums, and your you know your your prescriptions are capped at at I think the latest Bernie number was like two hundred a year. Um, you're not going to have to worry about your health. When you're not worried about your health, you're a lot happier, and you can seek out work and you know um, not have to worry about one less thing that that um, most people in the civilized modern world don't have to worry. If, if you go to Canada, you look at their system. I'm not saying it's perfect, but your your healthcare isn't tied to employment. So if you're free to go about and, and do your thing, that's one less thing that corporations have over your head that that makes people happy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it's like the freedom to know that you can do work to actually contribute yeah. to society so that you yeah. are a valued member of society, but also yeah. freedom to be able to escape an abusive situation if it does occur uh, through mm-hmm. common sense and solutions like as you mentioned with Medicare for all. So I'd be like curious, Patrick, do you think that work as well as healthcare should be the fundamental pillars of our economic guarantees or are there things that should be added beyond that? I, let me make sure. I like to mute myself so I'm, because I scream at what you guys are saying. But um, uh, the right to work part, I have my doubts. But I also don't see a right to work as maybe a necessity going forward. Quite frankly, I'd like to see a system where we don't need to work, or if we do, it's very minimal. Uh, that's way down the line. Yeah. Uh, to me, I wouldn't really make you know a, a right to a job something like a new bill of rights. I would most certainly put in medical. Medical is a foundational thing. We never know when we need it. We, nobody, this is another thing I'd like to really push back against all those people who are for the free market part. Um, You can't be a wise consumer of medical services throughout your life. It's impossible. You don't have the knowledge to be a good consumer. And when you need it, you don't have the ability to choose. You can't tell, you know, please print me out a summary of how much it's going to cost me before you send the ambulance out to pick me up for my emergency. People are retarded with this. So no, it is not a private good or service. It is most definitely leaning toward the uh, uh, public good, and it needs to be treated as such under the economy. Education. If if we give a damn about our nation's economy, we know, and and everybody knows, we need to have an educated workforce who are performing at the top of their capability, not their economic limits. Yeah. Okay? And 
that so those two things go a big long way. I would throw in a safe, affordable, accessible shelter. Uh, I'm not saying a mansion. We could talk about the levels, but if if you know if if you lose your house or something happens to you and it means you're going to go out on the street, you become a desperate person who's struggling to survive. You become one of the people struggling in the ocean looking for a lifeboat. And you're likely to damage other people trying to save yourself. That's though that level of, of desperate desperation should be outlawed. And it shocks Europeans to see just how much poverty we have in our streets. It shocks me. Yeah. Um, So those three things I think are, are definitely there. I tend to agree with you, Patrick. I think one of the things when it comes to healthcare is people have to understand this concept of price inequality and price inelasticity. Uh, so when you have a good that is simply going to be demanded regardless of its price level, take people who need insulin, uh, they are not going to be able to do without it. Otherwise, they die. They're going to pay whatever it's going to cost. Yeah. So taking yeah. that burden off of people's back where they can be price gouged out of life is something that we all need to take into serious consideration when it comes to balancing capitalism and socialism. We should be socially agreeing that we should not have price be a burden to live. And I think you elaborated on that perfectly also when it comes to the idea of shelter. Because if we want to talk about healthcare, we also have to talk about the side of trying to reduce costs. And the way you do that is preventatively by giving people the basics to just survive, which is shelter, food, water, and clean air. Um, So I'd be curious to know, Greg, do you kind of agree that uh, work should be one of those pillars that should be guaranteed? Or given this new automation trend within our economy, is that something that we shouldn't be aiming as a guarantee? Uh, That's an interesting question. I just heard some, uh, I don't know, I don't remember who he was, but some economist on YouTube was talking about, again, how capitalism just screws people over. So for instance, you know, you make this new hamburger maker that will make hamburgers at Burger King automatically. Now, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but why do the benefits of that machine go to the owners? Instead, it used to take, you know, it used to take 10 people to run the restaurant and they would have to work full time, but now we have this hamburger maker, so you know what? We only have to work five hours a day. That frees us up to do what we care about, read a book or paint a picture, you know, write a novel, whatever. And it's just another example of how these things should be benefiting all of us rather than the owners. That's just the fundamental problem with all of this. So yeah. whether we're, whether we should have be guaranteed a job, I'm not sure if that's asking the right question. I mean, Yes, except that the only reason we go to work is to it's it's for literally for we're we're literally being uh, uh, you know exploited every hour we work because they're making more money than we're giving to it. So, but but or should it should we go be really radical and say it should be a job that is what you want to do? You know, I want to write the next symphony or whatever, or I really enjoy carpentry, but I can't find a job there, but this will allow me to do that. So. Yeah. I don't really have an answer for that. I I do believe that's part of the reason why we have 85% of people saying that they hate the job that they're currently doing is because they feel like it's simply a necessity to have a job 
and that is mm. commonplace for the only way to put bread on the table, essentially. Uh, so right. I'd be kind of curious, Frank, being the person who brought up work being a guarantee is something that should be in our economic bill of rights. What do you think about this idea of automation eliminating the need for work to be a guarantee? Um, I I understand what everybody's saying, and and I mean I'm not totally against automation. Like you know, I think I find it endlessly fascinating to know that within probably 20 years we're going to have like I think they estimated half of the cars that you see on the road aren't even going to have a driver. Um, but um, uh, I think also. I think it was Greg, you made a really good point about the amount of work that we put in and the amount that we get back. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm okay with automation as long as, you know, we're paid properly. You know, I, I, I don't know if, if guaranteed jobs are the absolute answer. Maybe, maybe Andrew Yang's UBI is, is part of the answer, but you know, everything I've read about UBI, I mean, you know, I mean, you, they're not going to give us a thousand dollars a month and not take away other benefits like social security and, and disability benefits and, and whatnot. So to be honest, I don't, I don't know the answer on this, but I, I think, I think it was Michael Moore that, and I'm not a huge Michael Moore fan, so don't, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but, um, he did an interesting documentary where he went overseas and, and the, the people over there were working way less hours making you know way more money they had more time with their families i think i think their lunch hours were like, i think he was in italy and their lunch hours were like two hours so that way they could drive to their home make a home-cooked meal spend time with their family and then come back to work i think i think solutions like that are yes go ahead yeah yeah oh no that's okay um so i think i think solutions like that are um you know they should be on the horizon. I mean, I know that there are other places that are even worse shaped than the United States when it comes to the amount amount of hours. I know Japan. I, I do a podcast about specifically about Japanese role playing games and and video games. And I know over there, like they're working 80, 100, 120 hours a week. I was, I'm like, how is that even possible? You know, how how do people even have time? And there, we did do a story on on Japan and how, you know, they're they're having trouble with with even dating they can't even date because they're they're they spend so much time at the office um and i i think a lot of that you know trickles <laughs> not to use this term the way that most people use it but it trickles down into other parts of the world and i mean what are we going to do are we going to work 120 hours like some people in this country do just to make ends meet like i, I can't I can't even fathom working more than than forty to sixty hours in in a work week. I know that there are some people that that are really good hard workers, but at some point burnout becomes like a huge issue. So, you know, yeah, can, I, can I respond to that? I just want to say one thing that, it, that what you're saying reminds. I love the way you're talking about this because you're just talking about it from just a human common sense mm -hmm. point of view. Like, why does anyone want to work? over 40 hours a week and something that drives me crazy is like yeah. when you get involved when you get to talking to some like republican pro-capitalism guy their whole mindset is about what's best for these other people the owners and like oh yeah. you know competition that what about competition and everybody has the right if you don't like working that hard get another job and all this stuff it's like the way you're talking about it frank is so obvious mm. it's just weird how people can't 
in this country can't even talk about it in that way. Yeah. They're so conditioned to be like, no, you're being, that's lazy. I don't even know yeah. what you're saying right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, um, when people talk about, uh, Mexicans in this country, the old trope, you know, you know, the, Oh, he's a Mexican. He's lazy. I mean, it's that whole trope, you know, Mexicans are lazy, but in reality, like when you look at the road, the infrastructure, I mean, infrastructure has been coming up a lot. A lot of the infrastructure that's been built around this country has been built, you know, mainly of crews of, of Mexican people that have immigrated to this country. So I never, I never really understood the, the laziness argument at all. You know, anybody that's working 40 hours a week, regardless of what they're doing, if they're in fast food, if they're, you know, a greeter at Walmart, they're working their asses off. So yeah. you know, just never understand. Yeah, that, it's total. It's total bullshit. The yeah. hardest working people in the country are the immigrants from the south. That's just outrageous. Yeah, it's a weird part of America. Like we're the ones that kind of have this this attitude of dragging your feet while you're your Burger King job as well. Yeah. Whereas you know the the immigrants come in and they actually have a better work ethic than we do. Yeah. A lot so, of times. Yeah, I think we all really agree on that. If we're going to be generalizing or stereotyping anything, the reality of it should be they are amongst the very hardest working yeah. group of people here. Yeah. I've yeah. seen it by example. We know it in our hearts. We all, I think, agree on this. Yeah. 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 I've got to agree Could with I? the sentiment that was brought up before in terms of <laughs> the long work hours, especially of even Japanese <laughs> culture. Like currently I'm <laughs> working at a Japanese bank. And I've seen people who have never been able to fit in their social life and they get burnout on the job. So it's yeah. not even just a problem of burnout for how you act outside of work and what you do with the rest of the time in your life. <laughs> it also is just bad for you while you're on the job, too, yeah. because you're not being productive during that time. You're actually spending that time trying to recoup. And so yeah. I also have to push back just a little bit because I think... With UBI, uh, one of the things that will not be taken away with it is social security. And I think we do need an, a baseline economic floor so that people do have this ability to have more flexibility and freedom on how they are trying to shape their lives. So that work yeah. is working for them rather than work being work for just the people at the very top. And so mm -hmm. I, I would tend to agree that we need to have every person somehow achieving a little piece of the pie so that automation works for us all as well. Yeah. So yeah. I'd be curious. We're all kind of saying these same things within our circle. We need to make work work for us. So how do we actually try and prepare our future generations to come into this economy so that it can be shifted in that direction? Uh, so what do you think, Greg? What do you think is the way we try and prepare our future generations for that economy we're trying to drive towards? The big question for me is whether it's possible to make these Bernie-sized changes without... I guess, what's the minimum amount of suffering necessary to make these big changes? I think about this all the time, that we're one election away from completely changing this. We could, we the people, could change the system completely in one election if we would just do it. But we don't, because MSNBC is telling us not to. And so, huh. I don't know. That's the big question. How much suffering do we need before people feel that it's in their best interest to to make these changes and to start thinking that the the unknown 
is a better choice than the, the little bit of comfort we have now. Because I think that's one of the big things that keeps the, Demo the establishment Democrats from voting for these big changes is they're afraid of the change because mm -hmm. they're being told partly, but they know that they have health care right now, even though it sucks. And you're saying now you want the government to do it. I don't know about that. And then, of course, you know, there's all the racism involved with that kind of stuff, too. And like, well, I know at least I'm better than these poor people. <laughs> and what do we how do we which, again, is that's an establishment Democratic voter attitude every bit as much as a Republican. They're just not as vocal about it, I yeah. think. But what do we do about it? I don't I mean, I mean, just from a you know, from a theoretical point of view, we've already said start teaching them as, a, as kindergartners. But how do we do it practically? I don't know, except keep building the movement and keep making the, the, the case. That's I, it. Yeah, I, I think we have to start vote, stop voting for incrementalism. That's, yeah, that's exactly. Yes. You know, um, yes. when, you, when you are voting for candidates like Joe Biden, you're, you're not voting for anything. You know, right. he doesn't stand for anything. He doesn't have a platform. He doesn't have any policies. I mean, I know he he rolled out that that idiotic, you know, healthcare expansion of Obamacare, and I I looked at that whole platform, and I I started laughing. I was like, this is what people are excited about right yeah, now. Yeah. This is yeah. These these are the things that people are excited for, right? One hundred and twenty five thousand people over a ten year period are going to die, and you people are excited to vote for for Joe Biden. I'm like, you know, you you. You either go go big or go home. You know, I, I totally agree. I, one election cycle. And like I said, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, Bernie is not I don't consider Bernie Bernie to be a leftist at all. I think yeah. he's I think he's a centrist. I think if you look at world um, world views and you look at other countries and you look at their left compared to our left, it's not even close. It's not even close. Bernie is the first step. I mean, uh, Bernie's not even talking about a UBI. I, I, I like the theory of a UBI as long as other benefits aren't taken away. But um, you know, there's so many other things that, that can be done to, to make, the, make, this, make America great again. You know what I mean? As, I, yeah. I, I love that, I love that, um, that Trump has used that saying because that, that means that America was never great to begin with. And um, it can be. It can be just not with him and not not with the right wing uh, Republicans that uh, that uh, are permeating mostly in the South right now. <laughs> yeah. So I got I got to ask, Patrick, do you agree with them in the sense that it is really just forming a new culture and providing political education that can help us drive this future economy that we're looking for? Or is it really being done more from the actual education system itself in helping the future generations understand these values? So, you need to do things with the education system, like we were talking about before. It needs to start way earlier, and it needs to keep going until they've run out of the ability to go further. Uh, when I say they, I'm talking about us and our students. I might also throw in, somehow, if it were possible, well, two things, then, I guess. One is international travel is part of your education curriculum. Um, and two, really early, if you're not already bilingual from home, do it in school. Uh, you don't get into junior high or high school without being moderately capable in some other language. I think that's very important. Um, 
because you open up the door to different cultures that challenge the culture norms you have when you learn other languages and go other places. You just don't know if you aren't exposed. Mm -hmm. um, but then it, that's about as much as I can see because any ideas which become the foundation of a culture are ideas and they aren't beat uh, so easily institutionally. They have to come from well, other ideas that win out. Uh, and maybe I'm bringing that competition model. I hear a lot of people from the right talk about, ooh, the free market of ideas. Great, fine, let them label it what they like. But they're not wrong. Uh, you can't beat an idea with a stick. You've got you've to show them, talk it. You've got to be we the people and have them go, oh, damn, that, that looks good. And not everybody's going to join. That's got to be a reality of it. But over the long term, you see the change. And that's the kind of change that stays instead of waves of something that you could only find out if you dig deep in a history book. Yeah. So I got to ask, just kind of more of a philosophical question. What do you think should be the purpose of our education system? Uh, I'll, I'll start with Greg on that one. What do you think? Well, yeah, uh, and I, um, I was just going to say something about that. Uh, I think that one thing we've been, the, the things that we've been coming up with that need to be taught to young people are kind are so sort of uh, the kinds of things that I can just imagine how <laughs> the right would, re would respond. It's like, oh, my God, you're teaching everyone to be communists and so on. Mm. So I have something different that I think might be more important, which isn't um, philosophical at all. I think, in one, some sense, which is to teach the big thing that's missing is simple logic mm. and the ability to see when a, an argument is not logical, that they're appealing to authority or they're appealing, you know, it's a straw man argument, just those kinds of things. Because that alone, you, you cannot have a conversation with, with a right-wing person that is without logical fallacy because... That's how that's what it's built on is convincing people of something that isn't true. And the, one of the big problems with the education system today is that that's one of the things that's gone away, along with mathematics and science, is logical analysis. And going along with that is ethics, which I think you can also make an argument in another way that is not so socialist, but do not you cannot make decisions that harm, you cannot take actions that harm other people for your own benefit. It's unethical. And that those two things grilled into everybody would do a lot to get rid of the, the problems that we have. Okay. Or the ability, the ability, the susceptibility to propaganda, which is what we're all talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Frank, I'd be curious, what do you think the purpose of our education system should be? And do you think it should be the role of our public education system to try and teach people logic as well as ethics? Yeah, no question. I, I, I mean, Greg, I mean, I, <laughs> I wish you had a podcast because I would listen to it probably every day. Um, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Logic and reason should be taught day one, kindergarten. You start in kindergarten. Um, I'm a... 
I'm, I'm an atheist, but I'm even more than that. I'm kind of an anti-theist. And the reason that I am is because a lot of religion has to do with not thinking logically. You know, everything is, is as Greg said, a fallacy. You know, you're always, I'm always, um, I, stopped, I stopped debating with, with religious people about religion because of this. You know, there's no, there's no logic and reason to what they do. It's always straw man after straw man. I mean, I could point out Bible verses to the Christians or Quran verses to the Muslims, and it wouldn't matter because they're always thinking not in terms of logic, but in terms of faith. So I think... I think that's a huge issue, and I think that's why it's really important um, to separate church from state. Uh, I know there's kind of been, you know, the, the right always wants to say that there's a war on Christmas, which is absolute horseshit. There's never been a war on fucking Christmas. Um, but, you know, when you start teaching people logic and reason starting from day one, I think that that goes a definite long ways to eradicating a lot of the, um, the issues that we have. As far as... Um, Ethics go, I mean, that also, that goes hand in hand. I mean, I mean, if you're not ethical to start, you're not going to be ethical later on, and you're always going to want more more of that pie, you know, that economic pie, and you don't care how you get it. I mean, you can look at, at Trump's cabinet to kind of, kind of see that. I mean, you have Scott Pruitt, you have Betsy DeVos that wants to totally dismantle the, you know, the education system that we have uh, in this country in favor of charter schools, which I'm, I'm not necessarily, necessarily – um, against charter schools, my my kids have been in charter schools, but but they do it the right way. They're not you know not all about the religion and and the BS that that goes on with that. And it's not it's not a for profit. You know they they really do care about the education of the kids. But um, I couldn't have said it better, Greg. I mean it's 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 all about logic and reason and and teaching people proper ethics, which has been lost over the years as 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 well as um. Science. I think science has been one of the, um, you know, one of the educational tools that have been slowly deteriorated by, you know, <laughs> by people that aren't uh, as, uh, you know, on on the up and up on on logic and reason. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious, Patrick. Do you echo the sentiments that it should be the role of our public education system to start teaching people logic as well as ethics? And do you think there's anything beyond that that should be the primary purpose of our education system? I wouldn't say there's anything beyond, um, but I think uh, John, you need to put those planks into your uh, proposals for education. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend. Um, you know, we talk about reading, writing, and arithmetic being the core of a basic education that everyone has a right to. It should also include logic. It should include philosophy. It should include a, a solid second language. And I don't know, maybe we could package it as an, a reward. You graduate from high school, the language that you learn, you get to choose a country that speaks that as their primary language, and you get to go there for a month. Ooh. Just a month? <laughs> well, you know, we got to talk about what the country can afford. Hey, if you want to stay longer, go ahead and, you know, stay longer, but we'll get you there for a month. You, yeah. You've got to have some time to soak in a little bit of what you're seeing. Yes. That's actually a great idea. I, I never even thought of it that way, but that's, uh, I, I disagree slightly with the language thing. I mean, some people, it's not, not really inherent in them to learn a second language. I mean, it, I'm, my dad is from Mexico, 
and I I lost a lot of my 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 you know my second language, you know Spanish, when uh, I went through our education system and just kind of forgot <laughs> about it. But um, uh, some people are predisposed to learning different languages. But I see I I think at the very least you should strive for it because not everybody speaks English and that's just the way it is. This is a melting pot of a country, and uh, I think um, I saw t- statistics that. Um, uh, Spanish is actually going to be spoken almost as much as English in this country by the year 2050. Uh, I could be wrong on that number, but that, I mean, it's an interesting concept and I, I, I agree with the sentiment, but um, I totally agree with you. Um, we should send people to different countries to see where they're coming from and what, you know, the, the type of lifestyle they lead, they, they lead and, and the language that are, languages that are spoken and, you know, kind of get a different view of the world that way. Yeah, I got to agree with both you and Patrick on this point. It's actually one of the reasons, one of the proposals I've had in my plan is this thing called the Worlds of Service Program, where it would actually be a two-year program doing actual service work in other countries so you can work alongside people from these other cultures and be exposed to several other countries' cultures in addition to the people you're working with. But the, the final question I wanted to ask you all before we get into our three-on-three segment is essentially, who do you think currently understands these fundamental challenges in our economy best? I know we've all complimented Bernie here, but do you think there's any of the other candidates that understand the fundamental challenges in our economy currently? Uh, Greg, how about you? Lead us off. Is there anyone beyond Bernie that's truly understanding the challenges? I would only say that I don't know a lot about Tulsi, and she at least understands, I think, the, the need to keep yourself separate from the corporations, but how much she understands anything, I, I haven't really looked into her. I want to say that um, I recently had a huge reg- revelation about Elizabeth Warren, because there's been so much talk of, um, in the left about whether you can trust her or not. Mm-hmm. I finally think that I figured her out, and that she's very dangerous. She's She's completely a capitalist, an absolute right-wing, down-the-line capitalist. Mm -hmm. She thinks the problem is that there are excesses and that people are are going beyond what's fair. And if you look at her proposals in that way, that's what everything is about. It's all about regulating the excesses to keep banks in line, to keep, you know, uh, whatever other Wall Street in line. But, but then she's weirdly not on the same page about Medicare for all or, uh, or, or free college. The reason is because I think she doesn't actually believe in this idea that we should be taking care of each other to some level mm. and work above that. And more importantly, the capitalism itself is what creates the difficulties with Medicare, or with, with health care and everything else. She thinks that you can solve these problems with capitalism. She's against this idea. What I think she sees as giveaways to the poor, let them get jobs. I think she's really dangerous. So I'm sort of answering the question in the opposite way. I, I think, I don't know that anyone else understands it. I think that she has it dramatically wrong, but she is such a con artist. She's saying everything exactly the way that progressives want to hear it. And she's a younger woman and everyone's excited about her. And it really drives me crazy. 
Greg, I think that was pretty spot on analyzing Elizabeth Warren. I think Tulsi Gabbard's biggest weakness, you also pretty eloquently put, is does she actually understand the economy? She has decent rhetoric, but can she point to the specific abuses within the system as uh, clairvoyantly as Bernie has been able to do over the years? So, Frank, would you agree with Greg that uh, Bernie really is the true understander of our economy, or are there other people who also kind of understand the fundamental challenges in our economy? Uh, he's the only one. Um, I couldn't agree more on, on Elizabeth Warren. I, I want to believe in Elizabeth Warren so badly, but um, time and time again, she waffles on Medicare for all. You know, she... I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable. She's she's admitted that she will take corporate bribes in the general election. I mean, this is somebody that you just absolutely cannot trust. Plus the fact, I mean, people were talking about electability. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's no one less electable, I think, than than Elizabeth Warren. I mean, uh, uh, Trump would absolutely demolish Elizabeth Warren in debates uh, more because of his bravado and his stupidity than anything, but people would gravitate way more towards a person like um, like Trump in a debate with Elizabeth Warren. I, I think if Elizabeth Warren is the, uh, the nominee, it would be an absolute disaster. I, 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 I just can't see, see it going any other way than, than Trump. I mean, um, Bernie's, Bernie has a lot of the ideas that I like. I wish he would go you know, more left on a, on a lot of things. Like, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of his, um, you know, propping up of the Second Amendment the way that he does and, you know, stuff like that. But um, he's as close as we got to, you know, to turning this thing around. And and as far as electability goes, he's, he's the one. Um, Tulsi Gafford, her weakness is definitely on the economy, and, and she could learn a thing or two by listening to this show. <laughs> so... But um, I, I would not be opposed to a vice president, uh, Gabbard, uh, simply because I, I think she wants to get us out of more wars than, than what, uh, we're in now. And um, I think that's also something that could help our economy quite a bit. You know, when you're spend, spending literally trillions on wars that aren't, aren't really to be won, I mean, what are we winning with any of these wars? Nothing. Um, I think that could help us quite a bit, too. Yeah, I, I gotta say, the only minor disagreement with you is that Elizabeth Warren is the least electable of the bunch. I still gotta give that to Joe Biden. I think he is truly <laughs> out of his element. Um, yeah, we could, we could argue that. I think they're both probably <laughs> probably very, very close. It, it's At this point, it's, you know, splitting hairs. I, I Maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean... Waffling on, of course, I mean, it was flip-flop Joe when he was talking about uh, some other things, but uh, I think I even tweeted out a picture. I, w I went to Walmart, which I hate going to Walmart, but, you know, as poor as I am, what what other choices do I got, speaking of economics? But um, there was a, a bin of uh, flip-flops, and I was like, oh, look, it's Joe Biden's. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, but uh, it would be close, but you, you may be right on that, but... Um, I think Elizabeth Warren would be very close to unelectable if, if she was a nominee. So, Patrick, do you agree with both Frank, Greg, and I so far on the point that Elizabeth Warren doesn't understand the economy? And are there people that you see that uh, understand the economy in addition to Bernie? 
I really don't think any of the other candidates have demonstrated anything that makes me feel they understand the economic needs properly. I, I think really Bernie's the only one who's got that really, he's got the right direction, if not the right plans already available. But, uh, you know, you also talked about, well, I want to talk about electability in a moment, but I think I need to throw out uh, a little bit of a shout out, if you will, for Yang, Andrew Yang. Not that I think he's got the same understanding that's required, but just the UBI, just the freedom dividend, just that part, uh, I think that his specific plan has a lot of work that needs to be done. But um, I, I, you know, a little bit of disclosure from my past lives as a Republican and then later uh, a, uh, a Libertarian, it was actually Scott Santens, he's, uh, he's on Twitter, who really pushed me in an opening of my mind to all the different kind of scopes with his, you know, real pushing. Scott Santons is a real advocate long time for universal basic income. And uh, it's, it's that realization that pushed me toward thinking about things in a bigger picture and where does social, you know, democracy and socialism come into an economic model. So I, I do want to give him a shout out for that. Um, I wouldn't necessarily know that I'd vote for him. Bernie's got my vote, my vote, my vote, my vote, my vote. Also, real quick for the electability stuff. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. When Trump, you know, we have an electorate. I hate to say it. I, I really hate to say it. We get what we deserve. Mm. We yeah. have such a sexist uh, electorate yeah. that... And it really, to me, was brought home uh, in the 2016 cycle when Trump was on the stage and he was asked about, you know, his comments about women and them bleeding out of every orifice. And he says, you know, except for Rosie O'Donnell. And the crowd went wild. Yeah. I was ashamed to be an American. Yeah. That was disgusting. But that's what Elizabeth Warren would be up against. And she would lose horribly. Yeah. She doesn't know how to handle schoolyard bullies. Yep. She's like me in a public. I'll be, you know, with me, I couldn't be up on a stage that way. I would be shaking and freaking out. And and, and she has a little bit of a stutter. I, I honestly like her, but <laughs> she would be creamed. And, you know, uh, yeah, Joe Biden. Uh, I, I just go back to John Kerry. Flip flops. I don't know if you guys are old enough to have been around. That's what sunk him, his swift boat stuff and the flip-flops. Yeah. Uh -huh. So thank you for George Bush. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just Bernie who under who, who really gets it, the long-term plan, the direction, and the grassroots movement that's required. Yeah. yeah, and I got to agree with you on your point that you brought up in terms of Andrew Yang having some level of understanding of the economy. I'd say of all candidates, he truly understands automation the best. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a fundamental point in terms of understanding why so many of these manufacturing jobs have disappeared, and it is going to be hitting a lot more of these industries. Uh, I should know this. I work for a company that mainly helps people automate away jobs. Um, so I know right. the cognitive AI revolution is going to be taking call center jobs, truck driving jobs, and so much yeah. more. 
I think there are some fundamental problems of his understanding of the economic forces of inequality itself. Uh, and that kind of comes into place when it comes with his design of his UBI, with having it be an opt-out from so many of these social welfare programs. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think he does have, compared to the rest of the field, minus Bernie, uh, some elevated understanding of what is going on. And so the final question I'd like yeah. to ask before we get into the three-on-three -three segment is, what do you think is something that Bernie Sanders should be considering to add to his platform? Uh, cool. So, Greg, what do you think is something that Bernie should try and consider adding? That's, I'm glad you asked that. I've been waiting to, to say this. The, the problem that I have with Bernie is I don't feel he talks enough about how the system is owned and run by corporations and how the candidates are owned and run by corporations. 22 out of the 24 people up on stage are owned by the corporations. There, there isn't even anything for we, for us to be talking about because there's only two of them that are even up there in order to ask for our vote so that they can do for us what they think is best. 22 of them aren't. And he doesn't talk about that. And I know whenever I say that on Twitter, people always attack me and say, oh, he mentions it all the time. He, he mentions it in this weird way. Like, it, he's not making the issue out of it that he needs to. Because whenever there's even, like, a list of what issues do you think should be talked about at the next debate or whatever, it's always, like, maybe down number four, money and politics. And even that's kind of a vague way of saying it. It needs to be front and center. You yeah. cannot listen to anything that Elizabeth Warren says because she has promised to take money from Wall Street. Yeah. She the nomination. You cannot listen to Kamala Harris. You cannot listen to Cory Booker. Nothing else matters. Nothing out of their mouths is yeah. honest because they're not working for you. I That's what he needs to work on and doesn't. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> so what do you think, Frank? Is it really he just needs to be even more blunt with his call out of money in politics? Or is there another issue that Bernie can do better on? Um, you know, if he added uh, the UBI to his platform, I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. I mean, I, I, I think everybody in, that we're talking to now could use an extra thousand bucks a month, you know, to, to just help. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm part definitely part of the 99%. You know, I have hardly money for anything. So a thousand bucks to me would be, you know, uh, not a huge boon. I wouldn't be eating steaks every night, but it'd be helpful, you know, it'd be helpful in, in helping with offset rent costs and other things so I could concentrate on, on maybe having a little bit of fun every once in a while. Um, but I think, to Greg's point, I think he needs to take the gloves off more. I think he's too nice to his uh, peers. Uh, he wants to appear, you know, as as the the nice guy to his peers, but I, I in this next debate, I want to see him destroy Warren. I want him to just take her to task for some of the things that we talked about here. Like I, I like the way that Warren is against banks. She created the CFPB, you know, all this stuff. And that's, that's all well and dandy. But, you know, I want to see him call her out for the money she's taken from Wall Street and other, you know, industries. I, I don't know. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I, I know she takes quite a bit of uh, donor money. Um, but but and and she's admitted, as Greg alluded to, that she would take money from uh, Wall Street uh, in the general. That's unacceptable to me. 
And that's why I firmly would, would not even consider voting for her if she got the, the nomination. It's like you're, you're, you're more of the same. You're in a prettier package. Um, you know, you, you talk a good game, but, but you're, you're bought and paid for. I don't want to hear it. I agree. I don't want to hear anybody that is bought and paid for by, by Wall Street, by, by anybody. Uh, by individual donors, I, I don't want to hear it. So um, to answer your question, UBI, take off the gloves and destroy anybody who gets in your way, especially Hickenlooper. Uh, governor, he used to be the governor in Colorado, and he was all about fracking and, and you know, destroying people's lives in that way. So, you know, I wish I wish he would call people out like that for what they are so they could just drop out and we could get on with the top four or five candidates, which happened to be, I think, you know, Warren, Biden, uh, Bernie, um, who am I missing? Kamala Harris and, you know, Buttigieg, who's an absolute joke as well. So, yeah. Uh, John, the- a little bit there. I, 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 I want to say that um, in addition to that, I'm just agreeing with myself. But I but specifically, the thing is, what's amazing about Bernie is that he is introducing all of these issues into the public discourse. All of America is talking about Medicare for all, whether they're for it or against it. Everyone's yeah. talking about free college. That's completely insane. He has the ability to talk about the effects of money in politics. And that's why it really frustrates me that he's not doing it, because it's not just in order to knock down the other candidates. He has the ability to get people thinking in that way, and he's not doing it. I think it's a huge opportunity loss. Yeah, yeah. I got to say, that's probably the better method of using the conversation of getting money out of politics is really uniting that force of the not me, us, getting millions of people yeah. demanding that it be something that is taken out of our system. But to Frank's point, I, I got to disagree on the sense that Bernie will take off the gloves, especially against Warren. He's always of the whole field called Warren, like one of his best friends. So I really think we're going to be left lacking on that front. I think Mm -hmm. it'd be great if he does take off the gloves to literally bluntly call out both John Hickenlooper and John Delaney to just drop out that no one wants their message. That would be just great to call them out and say, you specifically drop out right now. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I, I, Yeah, you're going to get no argument from me there, for sure. And then I also got to agree with you. I've been advocating for a long time. The things that Bernie needed to add to his platform was he already did the adding of the full student loan forgiveness plan. So that was the first thing that I advocated for him to push. The second thing I wanted him to push was for uh, a UBI. And I think that is going to be a big determining factor of destroying Andrew Yang. If he adds one, Andrew Yang's gone from the field. Like, to be honest. And although he's small right now, every 3% matters. So I I think that could be a big deal. But uh, Patrick, what do you think? What's something that Bernie Sanders could do just a little bit better? Oh, so it's not about a specific policy? It's about what he could do better? Well, a, a policy would be great for us to add, but any area where he could do better. Yeah, with clear distinction between Andrew Yang's freedom dividend and an actual UBI, Universal Basic Income System. I mean, the amounts, how frequently, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot more, I think, to be talked about, especially especially these trade-offs. If you opt in, then, you know, the amount you get for other benefits are counted against it and you're brought up to a 1000 or something. I don't know how that works, but... 
I would love to see a universal basic income become part of this platform. I don't think American general public is quite yet ready, and it may be distracting and may actually yeah. detract yeah. Uh, if he doesn't do it right. And so I, I'm not calling on him to put one there now, but it's certainly something I think we're going to need to be talking about pretty soon. And he does have the bully pulpit in a really amazing way. I love it. And that's his best success. And that's because of us, our revolution, yeah. us. Um, now, I know there was something else you guys are talking about. I was like, but <laughs> no, that, that's what I think, honestly. UBI would be really great there. And no, I don't expect him to take off his gloves. He's a gentleman. He's a statesman. And it's going to be part of our job. I kind of almost think, I wish there was a way. I know that, yeah, and you guys, you guys have probably heard of uh, Represent Us. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone, you know, generally interested in politics and these kind of things enough to listen to who, you know, where they might actually end up listening to us right now probably also know about it, but it's nonpartisan. So it can't really endorse or not endorse per se, as far as I understand. But corruption mm -hmm. is the core rotting problem there. And it yeah. is money in politics. But uh, until I heard Bernie Sanders, you know, when he first announced back in 2015, and I didn't know anything about that. It wasn't until I saw a TV interview about him and he said he was running and he wanted to find out. One of the reasons he was running was to find out if we could elect on the, on the national stage, a candidate who refuses to take money from any big interests like that yeah. and only small donations from the people. And he, when he said that, I was like, no. And I think most Americans still think the old political playbook is still real. They right. see Bernie, even though it happened really well last year. Um, uh, yeah. When he announced this year and, and when he, you know, the money he raised in 2016 cycle. You know, he's proved them wrong, but people haven't seen its success totally yet, except for, you know, 2018 and freedom, the uh, Justice Democrats and AOC. My goodness, such wonderful. But more, you know, we need more so that people say, oh, no, that is really viable. I hate how slow it works. But most people think that that's how politics is and they are somehow OK with it. Big money's going to pay for elections. So, yeah, I'd love him to talk that up a lot more. Yeah, I got to agree. And I, I do hope all of the people that are listening out there do know about Represent Us. They're a great organization. We made a video in the past on that specifically. So if you haven't already checked it out, go check out Represent Us. And so that's going to bring us to our final segment, which is our three-on-three, -three, which is I'm going to be giving you a list of three policies. It's a multiple choice. It's an opinion question, so there is no wrong answers. And you're going to tell me which should be the top priority we focus on or that we should do none of the above. Sound good, guys? Yeah. Yes. Do you, do you want our opinions about it, too, or just the answer? Uh, first, the answer, and then I'll go through and get the uh, reasons. Uh, so the first question, here are your choices. Would you rather have free public transportation? Would you rather have an annual audit of the Federal Reserve? Or would you rather have a national paid leave program 
for maternity slash paternity, medical, and vacation. I'll start with you, Greg. Which of those would you take or none of the above? Free transit. Okay. How about you, Frank? Which of those three would you take? Ooh, it's, uh, it's between free transit and uh, the last one you said about uh, medical and stuff. I'll take free transit. Okay, that's two. And how about you, Patrick? Which are you going to be taking? I want that uh, guaranteed paid medical maternity leave. And I, I really pinged on that maternity okay. part. So, Greg and Frank, what did you guys think in your mind when you said free public transit was the most important one? Let's let's start with Greg. Well, uh, first thing with I, I, I think my main question when I'm listening to this list is which one is going to help the most people and which one affects uh, it. It's something that I, mean, I guess I'm just saying again. But it's, it's something that it's one of those things that keeps people from being happy if you have to own a car that's just one more drag on your mm. on your happiness you can't you know go to movies or afford a phone or whatever and plus obviously it would help dramatically with climate change but i i think the maternity thing smacks to me as an identity politics kind of thing it, it strikes me as pandering it's important certainly but free transit is something that would help everybody in a massive way even with air pollution, as well as climate and everything else, so that's fine. Okay, how about you, Frank? Did you have the same reasons, or was there another reason you picked free public transportation? Uh, the same, plus I, you know, I have a personal vested interest. I don't have a car. I don't own a car right now, and it's really difficult to get from point A to point B for almost anything, and when I do, I have to pay outrageous uh yeah. Here in Denver, we have what they call Regional Transit District (RTD). Every city has, you know, busing and and stuff like that. But I mean, it cost me. It cost me round trip. It cost me like if I were to do a day pass, it would cost me twelve bucks a day to yes. have ability to to be able to transport from point A to point B. Which is, I mean, it's it's a lot cheaper than doing something like like say Uber. But um, it would make a huge difference. I know. For a lot of people, if you're not having to worry, as Greg said, about about paying like like uh, car insurance and a car payment and, and you're having the ability to go from point A to point B, that's a huge difference maker. And uh, it would make a big difference for me. Can, can I just insert one, one very quick thing? I just happened uh, a few months ago to read Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis, which took place back in the 20s or 30s. And it was right when they were installing uh, streetcars around the country and then cars were becoming more popular and the people in that book were complaining because the streetcar was only coming once every five minutes that just <laughs> oh lets you know God. how much we've deteriorated because yeah. I, I know without asking Frank right that these buses you're talking about costing $12 come once an hour if you're lucky yeah if, if you're lucky I mean here it's about every hour every 45 minutes which is kind of a pain but if you if you do it right like it 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 ends up working out, you know, but I, I agree it, it would have to be, you know, you'd have to have buses more than, than every hour coming to where, where your spot is, but yeah. <laughs> so I got to ask, Patrick, you were the one that chose to take the national paid leave program as the option. What led you to choose that over free public transportation? So don't get me wrong. I think transit's super important, but <laughs> this, uh, this leave, you know, guaranteed to me, I think is 
really important. I kind of, it, it reminds me of uh, Hitchens when he would sit there and totally stomp on theists. One of the things he talked about was women's liberation. And I know you mentioned, uh, what, what was it, Greg? You said it kind of smacked a bit of, was it yeah. Greg or Frank? It was Greg. Greg. Hey, Greg, okay, so, you know, it smacks of identity politics. But, you know, I'm going to toss this out, especially underlining that maternity part. It should also apply to fathers. They yeah. should be able to also go. So it isn't just for ladies, but the the liber, true liberation of women to have flexibility in their lives and careers. Not, not that, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of room for discussion in how do you balance that. I'm not trying to take that on. But I'm saying if you do want to have a career and work as much as you can, these things are necessary structures in there to ensure that that a family has time to really become a family. Uh, if we don't have an economy that can allow one of the partners, at least, to stay home all the time and raise kids properly, this is the minimum necessary. And without it, you've got, you've got people locked out of the workforce if they want to be there. Yeah. And I think that's, that that's incredibly detrimental to the women's liberation movement as well as our own economy and our culture. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I think one of the things that makes me tend to lean just towards the free public transportation over the national paid leave program is that this is something where there is still it being provided through work or not as a potential benefit. I think it is obviously something that I would propose, and that's why it's on this list. But I think there are already kind of solutions in play to have it be a competitive advantage to choose one over another. Well, free <laughs> public transportation is something that is universal across the board. It helps laborers. It helps non-laborers. It helps women, men. It even helps the businesses that are trying to provide that as a benefit. Uh, at a cheaper manner. So I, I, I tend to lean free public transit, but they're both very close. So I'm glad you guys chose those two over the annual audit of the Federal Reserve, which just doesn't help as many people other than having oversight. Uh, right. So now we'll can go I, on to our second question. Um, can so, I? Real yeah, go quick. ahead. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, was, I didn't know if I had myself on mute. Just real quick. I mean, I certainly don't want to downplay transit. Are we talking about free transit in a future form but not as it is now are we talking about like because i'll tell you right now my town is kind of middle-sized we're we're a university town and there is definitely a decent public transportation system here but it's not really great and i call it the you the need to use that transit system is what i call part of the poor tax uh you know it, it's it's stressful the buses you know how they run sometimes not reliable something happens you you're you're you know and I, I certainly think that we have a lot of work to do on helping people who need mental health and and housing for sure that's a different thing but those buses and those trains become temporary day facilities mm. uh and and you you end up i i've more than once unfortunately sat in uh, a chair that was uh <laughs> uh uh used uh by someone prior in an inappropriate way uh, that didn't stand out and 
found myself having to run back home for sure. Uh, just lots of little things like that. So, I mean, if we, we really need to improve that transportation, and I would certainly be for it being free, but yeah. it just in our current state in the United States, if, you're, if your transit system proposal includes, I mean, really, really improving the national transportation system, then yeah. Yeah, I got to agree with you. There is still a lot of work to be done to actually make the public transit system a better system that people would want to take. Because I would bet that even if it was offered for free, there are going to still be individuals who choose to opt out of it for concerns, as you had mentioned. Um, but yeah. now let's go on to the second and second to last question here. So, again, here are your three choices. Would you rather have a mega millionaire wealth tax of 2% on all assets above 50 million? Would you rather have the natural resource industry nationalized? Or would you rather restore net neutrality laws? I'll start with you, Greg, again. What would you choose of those three options? That's tough between one and two. Uh, I think I would have to say one is is more important. Okay. But two, two is an awful big one, but I guess we can talk about it. I'll go with one. How about you, Frank? What would you take? Would you rather have the mega millionaire wealth tax, nationalizing the natural resource industry, or restoring net neutrality laws? Uh, I would choose three. Um, one, uh, I, I'm not going to give an opinion, but I just want to say real quickly, I, I believe more in a corporate tax uh, than... You know, taxing mill. I mean, that's that's. I agree with that too. I think two. You know, two percent low. But I think the corporate effective co corporate tax rate in the rate in the fifties was somewhere between seventy and ninety percent. I think that's a lot more effective. Okay. So and I would choose three. Okay, and how about you, Patrick? Which of those three would you want? The wealth tax, nationalizing natural resource industry, or restoring net neutrality? I want that wealth tax. Okay, two for the wealth tax. So let's start off with Greg. What made you choose the wealth tax? Well, the, the two that I think are important, uh, I really like the um, nationalizing the, uh, the resources as well. I just, uh, I don't remember, I came across this comment a little while ago and it really struck me that the wealth inequality in this country stems from, it's, it's like an original sin for this country along with slavery is that we gave individual people the, the train tracks and the rights to the coal mines and everything else. And from that point on, those people, the, the Rockefellers and the Rockefellers and the uh, Carnegies and so on, became wealthy. And they did it based on our resources. Mm -hmm. At no point did they do it based on what, on, on their own addition to the, to the, the project. And so I think that one's hugely important. It might be too late now. The wealth tax, to me, I, I mean, I don't disagree with what Frank said about the corporate tax, but I think that in, in this point, it's the, the wealth is a little bit, to me, indistinguishable between keeping it with the... I, I guess I wouldn't distinguish between corporations and wealthy people. I agree that it needs to be the corporations, but... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how about you, Frank? What made you uh, go with restoring net neutrality laws instead? Um, 
again, this is anecdotal and it's just my own personal experiences. Um, here in Denver, all we have is Comcast. I mean, they're, you know, they, they lie and they say, well, it's not a monopoly because you can pick, you know, a satellite option. You could go with, I think, um, uh, the energy company actually offers another, like like the phone company offers a DSL, which is far far inferior to any cable, um, you know, internet that you have. Um, my recent bill, they charged me an extra fifty dollars because I went over on my data, and I did nothing more than watch normal. I, I don't I don't have like cable channels. I watch I watch stuff on YouTube or you know a plethora of other free channels that are that are online, and I had to like uh, I mean this is more of like uh, you know a, a, a smaller issue in my view. But um, the way that it affected me was you know if you're charging me fifty dollars more for an additional ten gigabytes of data. And you're not offering, you know, unlimited data, and there's no option for that other than than to pay. I think when I when I called them, they wanted to charge me an extra fifty bucks a month on top of what I was already paying in order to get unlimited data. And even if I got unlimited data, they would slow my speeds down after a certain point. I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous, and and it's it's a reason why, you know, the future is basically the internet. So you're you're gonna have to offer more options or or be forced to, to offer them. No. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, too, especially after we've subsidized them so much to be able to actually build out these 4G networks. Yep. Uh, but, Patrick, I, I'd be curious. What led you to choose, like Greg, the mega millionaire wealth tax? So, I don't know. Well, I do know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have a a core belief that there really should be no such thing as individual multi-billionaires. It's just, it just in the big scheme of things. And I know this definitely sends, sends chills down the spine of a lot of free market capitalists in that sense. But you can't, when you're at that kind of level of wealth and we're talking about like 0.5% here, we're not, you know, you know, People who have tens of billions of dollars. It's just you can't even spend it if you wanted to. And anything you try to do, you end up making money on anyway in our system. It's anyway. So, yes, yeah, a wealth I, tax, I, I think, is absolutely necessary. Yeah, I got to um, agree with your point there, especially given the fact that, as you were just saying, they don't know how to spend it. Jeff Bezos literally admitted that verbatim. And so he said, what could we use it on? Uh, let's go to space, even though we have a ton of ventures already trying to do that. And it's kind of this big dick showing contest between all these billionaires of who's going to get to Mars first. And I also have to say, these people have undue influence. When you consider Bezos's uh, companies establishing a media network through things like the Washington Post, having a surveillance system with things like the Amazon Echo as well as Ring, uh, having the net worth of the 16th largest country on Earth in terms of GDP, he is essentially his own nation state. And so I don't think any person should achieve nation state status. Uh, so I, I got to agree that a mega millionaire wealth tax would be a great way for us to try and actually correct that wrong. Um, so yes. now I, I want to move on to our final. Oh, don't you do that. Oh, John. okay, fine. We'll go back. Patrick, you want to add a little bit more? Yes. My husband and I were fighting over that nationalizing 
we, I was talking specifically the uh, the you know like energy industry. Uh, you're talking natural resources, and I definitely think that's a a good idea. But we were arguing, and that kind of goes back to the what role might capitalism still play in an economy that's going toward uh, real democracy and dare I say it, socialism. Um, you, you, you socialize the natural resources industry. Hmm, you're going to turn a lot of heads, but I, I want that. But there's still, uh, I, I guess when I talk about that UBI, we talk about that autom autom automation of the economy. I, I think we got to be able to balance it for a little bit because I still want the incentive that capitalism brings to increasing that automation and efficiency because we're going to need it a lot more before we can really transition over to less of capitalism, if that makes sense. I'll leave it at there. I'm blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, no, I get your point there on that point, and especially given – the uh, evolution that you said you had on these issues going to become this more from Republican to Libertarian to more lefty-leaning, uh, I think that it's pretty remarkable that you're now in favor for nationalizing the natural resource industry. But let's, let's move on now to our final three-on-three -three question. So let's, here are your choices. Would you rather increase funding for the Department of Urban Development and Housing uh, to be able to assist people in buying their first home? Would you rather ban the buying and selling of guns internationally? Or would you like to reinforce trust-busting powers over large tech, finance, and agribusiness industries? Greg, which of those three choices do you want to pick the most? I'm not sure what you mean by the reinforcing the trust-busting. Trust-busting is important. Just it goes along with the wealth tech, but I'm just gonna because I'm not sure what you mean by three. I'm just gonna go with let's just eliminate guns altogether. Okay, so I, I'll give a little clarity there before we let Frank answer. My my mention there is that we need to reestablish a new set of procedures to evaluate and standardize when something is going too far in its existing <coughs> state. Uh, so there is a lot of trust busting powers in terms of the banking industry, but it's become a very hard thing to do for some of these other industries like tech as well as agribusiness. Uh, so, Frank, uh, I'll repeat the choices for you. Uh, it's first, would we rather increase funding for the Department of Urban Development so we can assist people in buying their first home? Would you rather ban the buying and selling of guns internationally, or would you rather reinforce trust-busting powers over large tech finance and agribusiness industry. Yeah, it's definitely the third. Um, I kind of disagree with your point about uh, there's trust busting for the banks. There really isn't, uh, and there needs to be more of that. But if you're talking just like the ag agro business, um, agricultural business, there, there's no question that, that the majority of farms in this country aren't what people think. They're not the small mom-and-pa farms are these big-time corporations that are controlling all of the agriculture in this, in this uh, country. So I would definitely say the third. Okay. And now, Patrick, which of those three would you want to choose the most? The helping people be able to buy their first home, banning the buying and selling of guns internationally, 
or reinforcing trust-busting powers? Uh, I mean, 100% for the trust-busting powers. Um, also want to real quick say on this last question, uh, uh, I've had the distinct advantage over uh, uh, Greg and Frank as I got to go third and hear what everyone said before. So I have that additional information they didn't have. So, uh, but absolutely that trust busting power. And I agree with Frank and I bet, uh, uh, Greg would, uh, probably agree too now with that definition, probably the trust busting. I'm not going to change his opinion for him. I'm just saying, uh, that's, that's really where it's at. I really still, like I was saying, believe capitalism has a role to play, but, we have to get it under control. It needs, the capitalist economic system needs to understand thoroughly that it is serving us, not the other way around. And if, you know, in many of uh, the courses and things I've taken, you know, monopolies aren't necessarily a bad thing. If you like capitalism, uh, it, there could be great efficiencies there. But, um we have the biggest, most, uh, uh, yeah, I keep talking market cap, uh, the most valuable <laughs> companies <laughs> uh, are tech. Um, we've got to get our eyes on them and figure out what's going on here. They develop and move faster than our laws are, for sure. And they, they have next to no regulation. And we don't really have an understanding of exactly how deep they get and how powerful they are. We need to have institutional power to look into that and to take action when we find something that isn't compatible with the long road path ahead. Yeah. I got to agree with you there. And uh, before we wrap up, I want to let Greg have an opportunity to explain why he chose his choice or if having that definition makes him want to go with trust busting. The problem I have with a concept like trust busting is I think it's not nearly strong enough. It implies that the way that we do this is we allow these companies to grow out of control until at some point we decide, you know what, you're doing you're too big. Well, by that time, by the time we start complaining about it, they've already done untold damage. Like Amazon is a perfect example. Microsoft just, you know, it's impossible to estimate how much drag us all having to use Windows was for, for 20 years. And so to me, trust busting is way too weak. And it also, it's this legal solution that gives corporations years to fight it in court yeah. by or it's no longer an issue. So I'm completely in, in favor of eliminating large corporations altogether. I just think that trust busting is this, it, it's, I, it obviously depends once again, like the transportation, what exactly are you offering? Because just when I hear trust busting, I think of the Microsoft lawsuit and I think about us now after 20 years of damage, trying to do something to Amazon like Europe's doing it's not enough. It needs to be prevented from ever getting big in the first place. Mm, yeah. and, and so, so the point is, however, completely getting rid of guns, that's one of those huge things. That it's like, yeah, if that's my option, let's do that. So, 
Yeah, I, I got to agree with you. In, in my mind, the banning of guns internationally is one of the biggest sins of the NRA. It's had many an article showing how the American gun culture has funded crime overseas because we have too much of a surplus of guns. So wow. if we can simply actually curtail our own problems, we're going to also help lead international peace in some regards because of that. Um, but great. with that being said, I want to just thank you all for coming on today. It was really great being able to talk with you all on how we can actually spur on a more efficient and ethical economy. Uh, but I just want to let you all have an opportunity to let the fans out there know what you have going on currently. So, Greg, is there anything you want to let the Rosebuds out there know that you have going on? No, I just want to say that uh, I've never agreed so hard with three other people in my life, so it was a weird conversation, but yeah, it was, it was fun, so yeah. Well, we're glad that we got to have you on so you could find all this agreement. So, Frank, do you have anything out there you want to let the folks out there know you got going on? Yeah, I, I, first I just want to say thanks for having me on. Uh, I do a podcast called RP Grinders. It's basically a uh, podcast about uh, Japanese role-playing games and role-playing games and uh, video games in general. But the second half of the show is actually quite different. And we almost always, especially lately, um, ever since Trump was in office pretty much and even before that, but... Um, uh, we do a lot of progressive politics, um, skepticism, um, you know, a lot of fun topics. Sometimes we'll talk aliens and, and other, you know, fun topics. But, uh, yeah, check it out. It's on iTunes and everywhere else. Uh, uh, we do a live show every Friday, 7 Eastern Time on Twitch.tv slash RPGrinders and on YouTube Simulcast. So, um, check us out there. And I'm on Twitter at Frank Branches, and the show's Twitter is at RP Grinders. Yeah, that's definitely a state of our media currently of politics invading every aspect of our current conversation of people to enjoy. Uh, and I got to say, I do love RPGs myself, so everyone out there should go check them out. Uh, and now, Patrick, is there anything you want to let the folks out there know that you got going on? I have no projects at the moment, um, and I feel incredibly honored to have been asked to participate right here today. It's really, I think, the first time I've done anything quite like this. Um, so, yeah, I'm just Patrick, and I'm the Token Square on Twitter. That's really all that i got going on right now. Well, we're very glad that we got to have you on as well as Frank and Gregory. Uh, we're going to be posting all of their Twitter handles below, so you'll at least be able to have that for your reference so you can find any content that they do have in the future. Uh, and so in terms of what we have going on here, I just want to remind you all that we have our ongoing polling currently on our channel. So we are still trying to look for more people to vote in our Terrific Tuesday poll so we can find out more of the alliances that are going on in our 2020 Democratic debates how people are aligned demographically. We're going to be including that in the description below. So if you guys can go check that out, that would be much appreciated. But until next time, friends, stay rosy.